that worship team, that was a very profound song that I think captures very well this Advent season that we're starting. It reminds us of the glory of the Redeemer who came into a dark world. So I'm Ben Burkholder. I go with Jen, if you haven't figured that part out yet. Um, I serve as an associate pastor at North Park Church in Pittsburgh. I also teach adjunct at La Roche University, which is why I partner with the local college ministry there. And I just want to kind of share with you some of the, some of the, the darkness that is in our world today. This, this past week, I graded some of my students' discussions, and I asked them this question, is history going anywhere? And of the 20 students in the class, only two thought faith had anything to do with that answer. Most of them answered it something like this. History is just going to end someday. And usually some kind of cataclysmic event, maybe it was climate change, maybe it was an asteroid hitting the earth, but there was no ultimate point The human history was just going to end. And so there is this sense that as our culture forgets what Christmas is all about and what Easter is all about, human history has no point, no end game, no, no goal toward which it is heading. And that's a pretty sad place to be. And so we wonder why there's loneliness, why there's sadness, why there's depression. And I think a lot of it has to do with the story we tell ourselves about the world. And I think this is the place where the Christian story that we tell of a Savior coming into this dark world, of bringing hope, is such a powerful story right now. Now if we go around and ask people, is it good to have hope? I'm going to guess most people are going to say, yes. Hope is a good thing. In fact, I, I imagine all my college students would say the same thing. Because many people view hope as like the necessary fuel we need to get through life. So you think about the gerbil, right? He's on a wheel, he's just running away, running away. Like, he's not going anywhere. And as humans, we can feel the same way. Right? You go to school, you get a job, you work nine to five, maybe it's longer than that. You get old, retire, and then you die. And you can feel like we're just on a more fancy gerbil wheel, but we know it kind of has to work. And so maybe hope is just that we've got to get up in the morning. I've got to go do something. And so hope is, look, we need it there, even though they have no grounding for it. And so while our world has this really sad story that it's come to embrace, it needs hope and kind of realizes we need something to run on, but it doesn't have any foundation for it. As Christians, you and I have a strong, strong foundation for hope. Today, I want to talk about that in our time together. Now, I'll be honest, for much of my Christian life, I, I thought hope simply kind of fell into another way of saying faith. So, for instance, here's 1 Corinthians 13, 13, where Paul says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. I always knew what faith meant, like you believe and trust in God. You need to do that to be saved, to have to be justified by faith and love. Well, Paul says it's the greatest. And so hope just kind of bounced around in the middle there for me. It never really made any sense to me. How is this different from faith? There are similarities, no doubt. But I want to start today, I want to identify what does it mean to have hope? Why do we need hope in our world? And then how we as Christians can have hope. So that's where we're going to go today. And we'll be spending most of our time in Romans 8, but I will get there in a little bit. So First of all, let's have a discussion here about what does it mean to actually have hope. So I'm going to offer this definition 
It's not perfect. It's mine. And so all the faults of it are with me. So I'm going to define hope this way. It's an enduring expectation that God can and ultimately will satisfy the longings of our hearts. So let me break that down. First of all, it's enduring, that it lasts. It's not just I wake up, oh, it's sunny today, great, I love it. And then tomorrow, oh, it's cloudy, I'm sad. Hope is enduring. It's going to live through the dark times. Even when it doesn't seem like those outcomes are possible, hope endures. Second, it's an expectation. And I chose this word because I experienced it a lot in marriage. Let's put it this way. For those of you who've come home and, and you have expectations for what your spouse is going to do. Let's say you worked really late and you come home and you're expecting your spouse to start dinner. But you get home and you realize that didn't happen. What usually happens? I'll speak for myself. Well, you get, like, well, I had this expectation, right? And, and what happens with the expectation is your heart, your heart begins to live into that reality. You begin to act as if that were true. And so I come home expecting dinner to start, and if it's not, now I'm angry because I fell in love with that vision of what it was supposed to be, what I thought it was going to be. Now, in marriage, we learn to give up some of those expectations, let them go. But here we are, when, I, when I'm using this word expectation, it's this idea that we fall in love with that vision, that what God offers, what God promises, we fall in love with that when we begin to live life here as we wait for the future as if God's promises will be ours. And they can be ours. And so the expectation, we let that actually seep into our hearts. See, faith, I believe, is a bit more of the mind, and there's a trust element of, of leaning into it. Hope, what I think is hope is different, is that we let our hearts then begin to attach to that. We should begin to love it. We fall in love with it. We build our lives around it. Now notice this. It's an enduring expectation that God will be the one satisfying our longings. Christian hope is always set on God. Our world hopes for a lot of things. It has hope in our vocations. It has hope in our financial system. It has hope in our political leaders. It has hope in all these different objects. But for Christian hope, hope is always rooted and located in God himself. Here's this verse from Paul, 1 Timothy 4.10. Paul says this, for to this end, we toil and strive. Why? Because we have set our hope, I'm sorry, we have our hope set on the living God. The God who is active in the world. The living God who is there, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And so God is always the object of Christian hope. And then I use can and ultimately will satisfy the longings of our heart. And I do this for two reasons. One is that there is this end-time expectation. So God has promises for those who follow him, who believe in him, that he will one day raise them from the dead and welcome them into his kingdom in its fullness. That is the ultimate hope. And so we, we live now with that expectation that that will be there. But there's also a sense of what God is active between here and there. So some Christians kind of just be hunkered down and just like, well, I'm just going to go on until till the afterlife hits me. But God's also active here and now. He's doing things now. He's bringing college students to Christ. And so there is this sense which we live into the next moment of our lives, waiting to see what God can and will do. And so hope has this 
expectation that God's going to be there in the next moment as I enter that, even as the details and the facts of my life look bleak. I still hold out that God is going to be there in a way I don't understand yet. He does act mysteriously. And so, to pull it all together, hope is an enduring expectation that God can and ultimately will satisfy the longings of our hearts. Now, what, what is hope not? Here are some things that hope is not. And so we often think of hope as a virtue, and virtues always have vices that fall on either side of them. They don't measure up. And so one of them is despair. Despair is a futile outlook that no longer believes God will or can meet our desires. And so if you think of a physical posture, despair is, is just the giving up. If, if I'm going to hold a desire out and say God can meet that, despair just says, God's got nothing. It gives up. And people meet despair in a number of different ways. There's the ultimate despair where people actually despair of life itself. And some folks take their lives. And they despair that there's any good thing that God could possibly give them in the next moment. But I would suggest most of the times we bump into despair, it's, it's much more subtle. So for instance, those of you who are parents, you have the struggle of trying to mature, help this child mature, and they do the thing you've been disciplining them for a long time, and guess what you do? It's a sigh. Well, sometimes that's a sigh of resignation, like we're back at the same place again. But it could just be, oh, man, you're never going to grow out of this. That's despair. It says, nope, God hasn't fixed you yet. I give up. Or when we say things like this to our spouse, like, you always do that. They're never going to change, right? We, we, we believe change is impossible. It's really hard, and it is hard to change as we get older. I'm, I'm going to agree with that. But if God's at work transforming us in the image of his son, then, then it is possible to change. But yet, it's easy just to say, you know what? I give up hoping change will be there. You always do this. You'll never do this. And so despair looks like deciding someone's done. They can't grow anymore. God can't change them. That's a form of despair as well. So despair, giving up that God's going to do anything. On the other side is presumption. So God does lay out conditions for us to receive the kingdom in the future. And presumption says God owes it to me. So while hope kind of offers ourselves and our desires up to him, says, I know God can meet these, presumption says, well, God actually deserve, deserves, he has to. He's obligated to give me this outcome. And so I, I meet people all the time. They don't really repent. They don't have faith. But they really expect and they demand that if God is loving and just, he would actually let them into heaven. So presumption is acting like God is obligated to meet our demands or dismissing the fact that, our, that God would require faith and repentance to receive his promises. So if we can chart this, it looks more like this. On one side, you have despair, which is, just say, we're giving up. On the other side of the pendulum, you have presumption, which is like, God, you have to do this. And hope would be somewhere in the middle, holding out, saying, God, this is the promise you gave I'm holding out my desire for it. I'm trusting you with it. So hope is a place where it's no longer a demand. It's no longer giving up. 
but it's pressing into the future, saying, this is the promise that God has for me, and I'm waiting for it, and I'm building my life around it, even though I don't have it in hand. Now, there are a couple other ways in which we use hope in our world, and I think what, what has not helped us as we think about a robust view of, of hope is that so many people use hope to talk about their wishes, right? We say, I hope it's not going to snow today, or I hope it's going to get warmer. We just kind of use it as like a wish projection, like, here's just a wish I have. Well, that's not the robust nature that we're talking about here. So hope is this enduring expectation that God is going to be acting in the world. It's not just a wish. It's living as if God is going to do that. There's also a couple of different imitations of hope that I want to separate out for us. The first one is, is optimism. Now, we like optimists. Optimists view the glass half full instead of half empty. So you have the classic comparison here between Eeyore, woe is me, and then Tigger, T-I-double-G-er, right? So we all tend to like optimists. Optimists get advanced faster. They get promoted. We like being around them. They're chipper. And we can easily confuse optimism with hope. Now, it could be from a place of hope, but not necessarily. See, optimism could just be, well, it could have this thought. As long as I think on the bright side of things, things will eventually work out for me. It's not really a hope in God. It's a hope in optimism itself. And so that's where it does not quite measure up to this idea that it is actually hope in God. Second one is one I'm going to call natural hope. One of my favorite thinkers, and we do cover him slightly in our, my philosophy class, just because I like to shape the class how I want to talk about it, but one of my favorite philosophers is Kierkegaard, and one of his books, he talked about natural hope, and for him, natural hope is simply this, looking at whatever situation you're in, let's just say you're applying for a job, and you know that there's probably 10 applicants per every job, so you figure, well, if I apply for 10 jobs, chances are I'm going to get hired by one of them. What natural hope is, is just playing the odds and expecting things to work out in your favor. And he said most people, when they think of faith and hope, they actually think of faith and hope in that way. Looking at the natural probabilities and weighing them and saying, you know what, if I just give enough effort, this will work out. And so it might be, for instance, we, get a, we go into the doctor and we, we learn we have cancer. And they come back and say, you know what, we've got a bunch of different therapies you can try. We feel hopeful about this. And you're like, yeah, this is good. Our hope in that situation would be in what the doctor's medicine is going to offer us. Now, God can use all that. But that is hope in the medicine. Not that God is going to be at work in that situation. And so Kierkegaard separates out and says, you know what, most folks, when they talk about losing faith and losing hope, what they're actually losing is natural hope. Hope in the odds working out in their favor. And he says it's only when you get to the end of that, when, when the odds no longer look like they're going to work out in your favor, you get to a place where you can have real faith, real hope, and say, now I need to trust that God's going to do something that the odds can't predict are going to happen. That God in a mysterious way can be at work in my life. And so I would say those oftentimes get factored in as, as hope, even when they don't measure up to the Christian form of hope that the Bible holds out to us. Hope, as Paul describes it here in 
Romans chapter 8. So you go ahead and turn there if you're not already there. Romans 8. Look at verses 24 and 25. Paul writes this, For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. And this is one of the difficult things about having hope and faith, is that the object of our hope and faith cannot be in hand. You only have faith and hope when you don't have the thing you're hoping for right there. Because as soon as you have it, you no longer need hope and faith. So Paul continues, for who hopes for what he sees? This is where hope must endure in a time of darkness, in a time of not having what you hope for. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And that's where the enduring part of, of the hope comes in. We have to endure to, during a time when the thing we hope for is not in hand. The blessings that God has promised his followers are not yet ours fully. So we wait, and we move into the future anticipating that day when God does deliver on his promises. But why, though, do we need hope now? Well, we don't have the fullness here. So what does it look like in our world to live waiting for that moment? We actually sang about this a little bit in that song. We all have this longing, this groaning for something more in life. And Paul gets into this in chapter 8, verse 19. Let's read this together. Paul writes this. For the creation waits with eager longing. He's talking here about all creation. It has this eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This is the moment when God is going to set the world to rights, and he's going to redeem you and I as his, his children. He says, creation's waiting for that moment. It's, it's, it's got this eager longing. It wants something more. For the creation was subjected to futility. He's talking here about the curse in, in Genesis. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope, notice this, it's pointing towards hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, note this, but we ourselves. So he's talking here about the Christian community. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What Paul's talking about here is, I think, what a lot of us have just experienced this past year and a half with COVID. It's part of creation groaning. This little virus, this microscopic, has wrought death across the globe. Then as we age, guess what? We, we, have, we, we realize our capacities wane. I've already started making concessions. I had to stop running because if I run, my, my back will literally start contorting, and I'll be in agony for days. So I said, oh, you know what? I'd rather like, forget the health benefits of running. I'll stop. And as we age, we, we lose more and more capacity. We make more and more concessions that our, our bodies have this decay in them. And Paul talks about creation itself longing for something more. I think if we're honest, each one of us has this longing inside. There's more. There's something more to this than just what it is. And Paul reminds us that the creation itself that we experience is, is the cursed side of it. And so there's going to be this, this absence, this, this emptiness in it. And so you can look at any accomplishment you've ever done. 
And on the back end, I imagine there's always a sense of like, oh, is that it? A couple years ago, my brother and I made this goal. We were going to climb Half Dome, which is one of America's iconic mountains. It's, we did the hike, just to be clear. We didn't climb up the face. We went the backside. It's a good 20-mile hike, you know, a good mile climb in elevation. It was exhilarating. We got up there. It was like on top of the world. So there we are on the right side celebrating our triumph over the mountain. And I remember getting down. It was like, we trained for months for this. I got up there and got down. I was like, yeah, this is awesome. And I just had this thought of like, oh, it's over. Like, what's next? And I started realizing why people like, would want to keep going, like, try Everest, even though it could kill you. It's like, huh, that, that adrenaline rush was, like, so cool, but then it was so fleeting. And I think if you were honest about any one of your accomplishments, you had a similar thing of, like, yeah, I did it. And then afterwards, there's this haunting emptiness. Is that it? And so I think of life, we ask that question, is, is this it? Is this all there is? We have longing for more. We'll get to that. So on the one hand, we see that that we have a longing for it. Now, our world is very invested in us staying the course on this. So there are a couple different options people have when they come into the sense that, okay, the world has a sense of emptiness to it. The one side is to deny that that's actually the wrong game. So a lot of people, and especially marketers, are very much invested in keeping you in this game, thinking, okay, if you're dissatisfied now, you just need to try a different kind of thing. So if you bought your car and you thought that was going to fulfill you, guess what? we got a better brand for you. Or if the house you bought, ah, oh, it's, it's disappointing. Guess what? You can buy another house. Or if your job's not satisfying, you can find a different job. And so the, some people say, you know what? If you're dissatisfied, just keep trying. You're going to find the right thing and you're going to Boom, plug in, and it's going to satisfy you. So the person who den denies this refuses to accept that there is something wrong with looking for satisfaction apart from God. If we are dissatisfied, it's because we have the wrong object. So just quick plug and play to a different one. If marriage didn't satisfy you, find a different spouse. You'll get the right one eventually. That's kind of the thinking. On the other hand, there are those who are cynics about all this and say, you know what? We're just not going to desire anything anymore. Those who believe they can find satisfaction, they're, they're the fools. And so we're better off just sitting back and sneering about everybody else and making fun of them. So the cynic stands back. And I think, again, the Christian path for hope approaches our desires, holds on to them, but holds on to them in a unique way. And to help us out here, I'm going to turn to C.S. Lewis, because I think his words probably capture this better than anybody else's. He writes this. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove the universe is a fraud. That'd be the cynic. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under, very, very appropriate for this weekend, or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do 
the same. And so Lewis would remind us that when we feel that haunting emptiness after our accomplishments, that's to awaken in us a desire that you were actually meant for another world. You were meant to be united in fullness with God himself. And to not lose sight of that. Not to just keep saying, well, what's the next rush I can get? No, focus it now on God himself. So on the one hand, we have this longing, and that's part of our need for hope. We have this groaning that is within. We also often feel stuck morally. I think about myself, and there's things that I've been struggling with most of my life that I feel flustered by, and I wish they were further along. And when I was graduating college, I thought I was somewhere close. Here's the problem. Um, I got married, and then we had kids, and this is kind of a joke, but this is true. In marriage, I realized, oh my goodness, I thought I was ready to fully love somebody else. I'm not. I'm a selfish little brat. And then you get kids in the mix. And so now you've got, okay, your wife, and you've got kids, and you realize, I just want to take care of me. Like, I don't want to care for all these other folks. And so, guess what? I realize, wow, I'm not fully what I'm supposed to be. And I move very slowly at changing. I'd rather stay. Is change even possible? When we begin to wonder about that, can God actually change people? Does he actually do anything anymore? Let me ask that question, and we can be wondering, does God work? We'll, we'll see more about that later. And finally, Paul mentioned here about the decay, that creation. It's bondage to decay. And the truth is, we will expend a lot of energy in our lives. You might go to school, learn a lot of information. You might build a business. Whatever it is that you will master in your life, it's going to be a sliver of the possibility you could have attained. And then at some point, you're going to have to lay that down as we die. And, and as a pastor, I've gone to more funerals than I ever have previously to, in any other job. <coughs> and there's a certain benefit to that because our society likes to push death out to the outskirts. But death is, is a sobering reality that we face. And so when you look at death being the final end to which we are headed, I see why folks say, who write my, like the answers in the philosophy class, I see why they say, well, there's really no point to human history. If we're all going to die, what's the point? And it's at this point where I think the, the Christian message, the Christian story, can speak to each of these points about what God has in store for his people. Because God has an answer for longing. God has a, an answer for human stuckness on being on their moral progress. He also has an answer to death. So here's why we can, as Christians, hope that God is about to offer and ha can offer more than our world without him can give us. One of the things that we long for the most as humans is to be known and loved. At the end of chapter 8, Paul goes into this really glorious passage. And he reminds us that God has already given so much. And as a result, we can expect God to give even more. Look at Romans 8, verse 31. Paul says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Notice verse 32 here. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So Paul's asking questions here, and he's expecting you to kind of fill in the answer. That if God has already spent and given the most dear thing to him, his son, then God's not stingy. God's not going to hold out. If he's already gone to the cross for you and for me, then what God has in store is even better yet. And he says he will graciously give us all things. Now, this does not mean that I'm going to have an amazing car tomorrow, I'm going to have the most money. In these next couple of verses, Paul still admits that the experience of the Christian can be one of suffering and hardship. It doesn't mean we're suddenly escaping from all of that. This is looking to the future and saying what God has in store is so much more than what we experience here. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So the very one who could condemn you, could accuse you, he's the one who's now interceding on your, on your behalf. That's pretty cool. He continues, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Then he brings in all these. Shall tribulations, well, that's, that's hardship, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Those things were real possibilities for Paul's life. He died. And yet Paul never thought any one of those detracted from God's love for him. It never separated him from God's love. And so as he's living into his life and suffering hardship, Paul's seeing through all that and saying, but God has so much more, and he's already shown me. He loves me more than I can ever imagine. And that's the love God holds out for us. So the longing that we have is that one day we will be united with this person who loves us fully, who knows us fully, and has chosen to love us and bring us in to be his own. So Paul continues here. He says this, as it is written, in case you didn't get the persecution part before, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But is that the end of the story? No, Paul says, and all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so that longing that we have for something more, Paul realizes we might have to live through some hardship. We might have to endure. But on the other side of that, Paul is holding out this vision that one day we're, our faith and our hope will be sight. We'll be enraptured in this love that God already has for us. He's already extended it. And that's the glorious future that Paul waits for with hope. And he invites us to greet even persecution, even hardship, even the stress itself with the hope behind it. That gives us resolve to face the difficulties of our life. And so we go back. I don't know where you are. I don't know the hardships that you face. But think about different postures. There's one way of just saying, I'm going to give up. Or God, you owe me something different. Well, there's the posture of hope. Saying, God, I believe you offer me hope. One day receiving all things, of, of one day being united with you. Help me receive whatever it is. 
you've brought into my life. So the longings that we have, God promises to meet those in the future. What about our lack of moral progress? Well, God didn't leave us alone. You see, see, God's at work doing things even now, and I don't always know what he's doing, and I'm always surprised. I'm going to skip the first verse that I had on here. I'm going to go for Romans 8, 26 to 29. What God has done is he sent his spirit to be with his people. And the spirit's the one that's now at work in our hearts, transforming us into the image of his son. Let's look at these verses together here. This is verse 26. Paul says this, Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So just as creation is groaning, now the spirit's also groaning, but he's groaning in prayer. He's interceding on our behalf. And what's he praying? Verse 27, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the Spirit is praying God's will over our behalf. Always. I can tell you my prayers are not always according to God's will. They're often very, very selfish. When I'm out deer hunting, for instance, it's like, hey, God, I want a nice deer to walk by right now. The Spirit's praying according to God's will. And what is that? Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Well, that sounds really good right there, right? All things work together for good. But what is that good? Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the Spirit's praying, he's praying the will of God, of God for us, and he's praying this, that we would be conformed to the image of his Son. So he's in the process, God's in the process of making us like Christ. And I kind of wonder what that conversation looks like. The Spirit's saying, okay, I think he's ready for this. Can we give him this trial? Yeah, I think it's time. I, I don't know how this is going right now with each one of us, but the Spirit's praying for each of us that we would be conformed to the image of his son. And so that's the project that God has going. Now, we often think, like, our, we have this American dream that we've got to live into, all right? We got go to college or whatever, or you go off and find your career, get established, buy a house, have a family. We, we have these milestones that we think we need to get through. I don't think that always maps on to what the Spirit wants for us. The Spirit wants us to look like Christ. And so he's praying for that for you and for me, that we would look like Christ. So as we go through these different stages of life, He's trimming away those things that are of flesh, that are of dross, and forming in us the image of Christ. This is what he's doing. Is God still doing that kind of stuff today? Oh, yeah. God's still at work doing this kind of stuff. This past week, um, I got a text from a lady in my church, and it was interesting. We, We have a prayer wall in our church. We've been trying to emphasize prayer this fall, and she dropped a prayer request off in, in the prayer wall, and it was for her brother to be reconciled with his son. And she texted me that his son and grandson were going to go meet with him that week on Thanksgiving. And it was a simple prayer. She doesn't really know. And she was asking me if I knew who got it. I'm like, I, don't, I have no idea. But here's simple little ways where God's still at work changing people, bringing relationships back together. He hasn't stopped. And so we, as we live into the future, yes, we have desires for people around us to come to faith, to, to, to be different. We hold them up 
knowing that God can change them. He might not always do what we want him to do. And he's really on my time schedule. But he's at work, calling people to himself, forming us into the image of his son. So we see that God does, in fact, change people. What about death? I mean, it's, it's great if you can become a, a better person, more like Christ, but if death is the end, it's still kind of a sad end to it all. And here's where Paul holds out something unique for us. Verses 10 and 11. Again, the Spirit's brought into view, but this time the Spirit is the one who raises people from the dead. See, as Christians, we, we start celebrating Christmas, but then we also celebrate Easter, the day when God's power broke into the world and actually pushed death back. And so here's what Paul says in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 8. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, note this, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And this is the hope, that even as we watch our capacities fade as we get older, even as we watch our, our minds and our bodies decay, that God has power to even reverse that, to give us a transformed body, to one day raise us again. And that is the glorious hope that is offered to those who have faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that our hope rests in the power of God to do what medicine cannot do, God can do far more. The picture here is of a, a man I met in Russia on a mission trip. His name is Alexei. And Alexei lives in a Soviet-style apartment building, just large, big concrete. I mean, the lights outside aren't even really working. Alexei has no legs. He's pretty much confined to that bed. He's also going blind. And so... The high point of his day is when he reaches over with a fishing rod and opens the window to look outside to see that it's bright outside. You can imagine being in his shoes. He's pretty much trapped, isolated, and then visually he has nothing to look at. And I visited with him, and the pastor who was with us started talking to Lexi about the resurrection. I have never shaken anyone's hand who was happier than Alexei. His whole body was trembling that someone had come to visit him, but then the message that we came to bring was one that God had power to reverse all of that. Here he was, a man without legs, a man without sight, and he was happy. Why? Because he had hope that God is the God of the living and that will one day raise up all those who have died in, in the faith. And so Alexei looked out, and he greeted that day with thankfulness. And that's what hope can do for us. I think that's what our dark world needs. That there is a power, there is a strength. It's a spirit at work in us, transforming us. Then it's also the spirit that can raise the dead to life. And that's what the Christian hope offers. And in a world where people think history is not going anywhere, my friends, the Christian story says it is, in fact, going somewhere. It is going to a day when God sets the world to rights. He judges the living and the dead. And he raises those who are his to enjoy him forever. That is the hope. 
So we're going to sing now about the coming of the Lord Jesus. Come now long expected Jesus. The Old Testament saints looked forward to the coming of Christ. We look forward to the second coming when he will do all this and hope and faith will become sight. Let me close this in prayer and the worship team, you guys can come and, and prepare for the next song. Lord, our world is a dark place and we pray that your gospel, your truth, your hope that makes us alive. Lord, I pray it would pervade. I pray you'd help us share it. I pray it would energize us. Let not despair and presumption overtake our hearts, but rather, Lord, your hope. May it infuse our prayers, our life, and how we conduct all of ourselves before you in love. In Jesus' name, amen.